You are listening to a message from Sound Words. To find information about our ministry, please visit our website at soundwords.org. You can also download our free app from iTunes or Google Play to access more great sermons. I want to recommend a couple of books to you, one of which you're probably already familiar with, the other you may be as well. The first is Dispensationalism, Revised and Expanded by Charles Ryrie. This book goes back to, I think, the 1960s, but it's been revised and updated in the 90s. I think even if you've read it before, I encourage you to read it again. It is a good summary of dispensationalism, which is the approach to the scripture that we follow here at Indian Hills. If you haven't, Stop by Sound Words and pick up a copy. A second one is Forsaking Israel, edited by Larry Pettigrew. This is the faculty from Raleigh Seminary. It's a little more advanced than Ryrie's book. You don't have to read it from front to back. You can pick chapters. Let me just read you one statement that I think is important, and it might be a good chapter for you to start with. It's chapter 7. You can remember that. But he says, Dispensational premillennialism may not be as popular today as it was during the 20th century. Then he goes on, Some young men and women originally discipled in circles that are friendly to dispensational premillennialism may have too quickly abandoned it in their ministry preparation. He later comments, Significantly, There has never been, nor ever will be, a theologically liberal dispensationalist, nor for that matter, a liberal pre-tribulational premillennialist, which is basically a dispensationalist. (laughs) It is impossible because of dispensationalists' intense devotion to the grammatical, historical interpretation of Scripture. And I think that's foundational, and that's what I want to talk with you a little bit about starting this morning. I don't know whether we'll get done this morning. We'll just see. But I want to talk about the rapture of the church. I want to talk about dispensational premillennialism, something we do often at the beginning of a new year, the end of the old year, the beginning of a new year. I want to focus on that with you today because it's what we are about as a church. There is a move away from it, and it's a rather rapid move. See the change just in the years that I've been pastor here, which have been many years. But when you look at the history of the church for 2,000 years, it's a relatively small period. We are departing, I think, from the literal grammatical interpretation of Scripture consistently. And that departure begins by, well, we'll interpret the Bible literally, But the prophetic portions, we're open to. But I think if you're going to be consistent, you need to be literal, historical, grammatical in the future things as well as the past things. Much of the Bible was prophetic, writing about future events when it was written. A number of those have been fulfilled, all those that have to do with the first coming of Jesus Christ. His rejection and crucifixion and resurrection. 
they form a major portion of the Old Testament prophecies. But somehow Christians make a break and say, well, prophecy yet to be fulfilled will be fulfilled in a not literal way, in a spiritual way. We don't deny it, but we understand that God intends it to be taken other than literally. I think we have a consistency that's required. And Old Testament prophecies, New Testament prophecies that have been fulfilled, have been fulfilled literally. There's no argument about those among those who are Bible-believing Christians. The death and resurrection of Christ, Isaiah 53 He was born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5, in that little town five miles out of Jerusalem. It didn't mean just a little town. Any little town could have fulfilled that. No, it had to be the little town of Bethlehem. Now, I don't try to understand, but I don't follow why, for some reason, We think that we have the right to change when it comes to future yet unfulfilled prophecies. So we are going to talk about the literal interpretation of prophecy. And the foundation for it is all prophecy that has been fulfilled has been fulfilled literally. There's not argument. Christ was born at Bethlehem. As the prophet Micah said, he would be born. He suffered and died as Isaiah 53 talked about. There wasn't, well, he would undergo difficulties, but the end result would be he would establish the kingdom. And somehow in there, people who claim to be Bible-believing Christians interpret the Bible literally up and through the first coming of Christ. And then they just go to seed. Well, now future prophecy will be fulfilled Not literally, like every prophecy that has been fulfilled has been fulfilled. So I think it's important that we understand that all prophecy that has been fulfilled has been fulfilled literally. We're not going to take the time to look at all of that. But as you go back, and any Bible-believing Christian would agree to that. They agree on the crucifixion of Christ, his death his resurrection. But then they make a break and say, well, prophecy from that point on is not literally true. There won't be a literal earthly kingdom. For example, in all millennialism, which dominates much of what is called evangelical Christianity, that believe that you have to have the death and burial and resurrection of Christ as the payment in full for sin. You must believe in him. Well, then the rest of it, no. We can't just disregard the parts of the Bible we don't agree. Oh, we wouldn't disregard it. But there are so many different positions on this. Well, yes, and we begin to depart from interpreting the Bible literally, historically, and giving it its historical meaning, its grammatical meaning. And that allows for figures of speech and all the different aspects. But we want to be careful we don't depart. Even figures of speech are presenting a literal truth. 
Okay, one of the foundational principles that we observe in interpreting future prophecy is a distinction between Israel and the church. Israel is not the church. The church is not Israel. And you begin to blur and blend them in an unbiblical way, then you end up with whatever you decide you want to have be your theology. Why don't you come back to Daniel chapter 9. We're going to start with the second chart I have here here, instead of the first chart. The second chart, the 70 weeks of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. This is just basically an unfolding of God's program for the nation Israel. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. Now note here, it's literally 70 sevens. They put in our English translation, weeks, you have in the margin of your Bible, units of seven. Literally 70 sevens. We could check, oh, is that seven days? Is it seven weeks? Is it seven years? And it's 77-year periods that we're talking about have been decreed for your people and your holy city. So these are focused on Jerusalem and the Jews. That's Daniel's people, Daniel's city. And then it will happen in those 70 weeks. You'll finish the transgression. You'll make an end of sin. You'll make atonement for iniquity. You'll bring in everlasting righteousness. You'll seal up the vision and prophecy. You'll anoint the most holy place. And then you have it broken down. And we have it on the chart. You are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there'll be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So it's a total of 69 seven-year periods, weeks of years. 69 sevens, 483 years till the Messiah. And that's basically where we come to. A week or so after that 483rd year, Christ is crucified. The starting point is 444 BC. So you have the breakdown there from seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now you'll note verse 26. After the 62 weeks, but you don't want to forget, they were after the seven weeks, the preceding verse, and you didn't even have verses when this was written. Verses have done done much later. So you had seven weeks, seven seven-year periods, and then you had 62 weeks, a total of 69 weeks. After the 62 weeks, which were after the seven weeks, so after a total of 69 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the prince, uh, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its destruction is predetermined. Verse 27. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. So we had the 69. Then we have the 70th. What we don't have in here is the church age. So that's important when we talk about the 70 weeks of Daniel which we're going to be talking about the rapture of the church that precedes that seventh week because you'll note the church begins after the 69th week. Verse 26, after the 62 weeks, 
which was after the seven weeks, where the total was 69 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. It doesn't say in the 70th week the Messiah will be cut off. There's an indication here there is a break because the prince who will come, the prince who is to come, verse 26, verse 27, he will make a covenant with the many for one week. So there's an indication here there is going to be a gap because after the 69th week, the Messiah is cut off, but you won't have the beginning of the 70th week until the Messiah signs a covenant with the Jewish people for one seven-year period. So we've put the church age in there in a uh, different color because it's not part of this 69 uh, week plus the 70th week. This total of 70 weeks doesn't include the church. But there's an indication there may be a gap here because after the 69th week, the Messiah is cut off and the 70th week will begin when he makes a covenant. Now, the Old Testament doesn't tell you anything about the church age. So there'll be additional revelation given in the New Testament. But the Old Testament makes provision for it. The 70th week, he could have signed that agreement. We don't know how long after the 69th week. And you wouldn't have ever guessed that it was going to be 2,000 years. But it has been 2,000 years, and we're still counting because Christ has been crucified. He'll be cut off, verse 26, and have nothing. And that's what happened. He returned to heaven. For 2,000 years, he's not been ruling a kingdom. So there'll be a covenant, verse 27, with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he'll put a sacrifice, end of the sacrifice and grain offering. So he's going to sign this agreement, but in the middle of the agreement, three and a half years in, he breaks it. So we have it on the chart. That's why it's broken into two, three and a half year segments. He signs an agreement with the Jews and it's going to be for a seven-year period, but at the end of three and a half years, he then turns against the Jews and attempts to destroy them. He'll have a three and a half year period. That's what's covered in the book of Revelation, which we'll say something about in a little bit of time. After that seven year period, just to get the picture, you'll have the thousand years. So in Revelation, chapter 6 to 19, you cover that seven year period. Then in chapter 20, you have the thousand years. So there's going to be a great deal of material given in later Revelation. That's why uh, Daniel is told at the end of the book in Daniel chapter 12, that verse 9, go your way, Daniel. These words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time, the end time. Because he said, Lord, I don't understand. Chapter 12 talked a little bit about that 70th week of Daniel. But Daniel didn't get the whole picture. He got the 70 weeks, which is crucial. But it's not until John writes the last book given, the last of the revelation from God that we have recorded as our Bible. In chapter 6 to 19, you'll get the details of that seven-year period. 
Then the climax with the return of Christ and the establishing of the earthly kingdom. Remember, with his first coming, the Jews were looking for that. The Jewish believers, at least. And even the unbelieving Jews were expecting a kingdom. They wanted it on their terms. But finally, in Acts chapter 1, what do the disciples ask? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? All right, now we understand you had to suffer and die. Now we can have the kingdom. No. You don't need to know. In Acts chapter 2, we have the starting of the church. So that's where we have a period not revealed before in Scripture. The church age, this 2,000 plus year period of time. How long it will be, we don't know. Paul, in writing to the Romans, told them that now your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. But it was 2,000 years away. Because Paul didn't know for sure when it would be. And he didn't have all the revelation. Paul is going to die 30 years about before John writes the book of Revelation. So Paul had a great deal of information. But the details that would be given to John regarding this last seven-year period, Paul doesn't have all those. Now, he is the recipient of direct revelation. He does receive the information regarding the rapture of the church. At the end of the church age, you see that line going up and then the arrow coming down. We meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. But that enables the 70th week of Daniel, that last seven-year period, for Israel to take place. Until that, we're in the church age. So we can't have the events of the 70th week of Daniel. The book of Revelation happened today. Yet commentary after commentary written as though we're in it today. We spiritualize it. It's not physical. It's not a literal interpretation. Well, wait a minute. Why? When everything else that has been fulfilled was fulfilled literally. It wasn't just Christ was born in a little town someplace. He was born in Bethlehem just like the prophet Micah said he would be. He suffered and died just like the prophet Isaiah said he would. Yeah, but now future prophecy, we go back and redo. What's yet? No, we don't. We take it literally as it is. Why don't you stop at 1 Corinthians 15? Now we'll go back to that first chart. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and it is the general overall picture before we look at the details for the rapture. Paul writes now, Christ has been crucified. He has been raised from the dead. The church has begun in Acts chapter 2. Paul's not even saved until Acts chapter 9. And he begins the ministry of carrying the word of God out beyond the Jews to the Gentiles, to Greek churches, like the church at Corinth. And he writes the letter back to the church Corinth. And so in verse 20 of uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he says, Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. So Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of the resurrection of everybody else who's a believer and who 
is going to experience resurrection. For since by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all dies, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, and when he has abolished all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and so on. So that anticipation, and this chart just lays out the overall picture that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. And verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 15, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. So the picture is in the Jewish, they would take the first fruits, and that was the guarantee of the rest of the harvest. Well, Christ's resurrection is the guarantee that we too will experience resurrection. And not only us, but Old Testament saints as well. So Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. Then there's the order. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. And so the first stage is we get glorified bodies, the church, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as he goes on to talk about verse 50 and following. I tell you a mystery. Now, this is something, a mystery in the Bible is something that has not been revealed before. It's not something now difficult or confusing. It is something that has not been revealed before. So I want to tell you a mystery, verse 51 of chapter 50 of 1 Corinthians. We shall not all sleep, referring to the death of a believer. We're talking about believer's deaths here. We shall all be changed. We won't all die, but we'll all be changed. And it'll happen in a moment, in an atom of time, quicker than you can blink your eyes. At the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. This perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. And he's talking about the rapture here. The rapture of the church. Because if not, then you have every person who's a believer in Jesus Christ getting a glorified body. Well, in the resurrection, we neither marry nor are given in marriage, Jesus said during his earthly ministry. So, we have the thousand years following the second stage is coming to earth. But if the first stage and the second stage are blended all together, and that's what non-dispensationalists do, you can be post-tribulational, premillennial, or you can be amillennial, or you can be postmillennial. We're premillennial. We're pre-tribulational premillennial. We believe Christ is coming for us before the tribulation. That's the first stage. It's in the air. We're caught up to meet Christ in the air. Well, everybody then gets glorified body. Well, then what about the thousand years? And the rebellion with a number like the sand of the sea, they can't be counted in Revelation chapter 20, who rebel against Christ at the end of the thousand years. Oh, well, there must be some. 
There aren't any. If it's a post-tribulation rapture, after the tribulation, it means everybody gets a glorified body. If everybody gets a glorified body, then we won't marry or give any marriage. We're not having children anymore. Oh, well, then who rebels against Christ? Well, then we must make this a spiritual picture of what is going on today. That we have been made new in Christ today. And you begin to just wash out a literal interpretation of Scripture. Instead of saying, well, that just won't work. And if everybody is raptured at the beginning of the thousand years, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, church saints, we all get glorified bodies. We come back and we start the kingdom. Well, who's going to rebel against Christ? Well, we'll work that out. We come up with ideas and then we go backwards. Well, we're not taking future prophecy literally. Maybe we don't take all the Old Testament literally. And that's why it is a progression downhill. That you abandon the literal interpretation of future things. Then you've established a principle and principles of interpreting the Bible in a non-literal way. Now we'll just back that up more and more and more. So pretty soon we have people going to church, but they don't believe you have to believe in Christ to be saved. So it's important that we take this literally. The church is raptured at the first stage. That's before the seven years begins. The seven years doesn't begin with the rapture of the church. We're going to talk about the rapture of the church. Let me talk about it now, but we'll give the reasons for it in a moment. The first stage of the coming of Christ, we could say, is the rapture of the church. That's where Old Testament saints are glorified. Come over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Some people say, well, the word rapture doesn't appear in the Bible. And they're right. Because when the Bible was written, the New Testament was written in Greek. So the English word rapture doesn't appear. Oh, how smart. But... There is a Greek word in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that when you translate it, what happened is they translated the Bible into Latin. And the Latin word is rapture, basically. So we just carried that over into English. We sort of anglicized the word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed brethren about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Christ died and rose again, that's a believer, one who is a believer in the church age, who believes in the death and resurrection of Christ, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For we say this to you by the word of the Lord. So this is God speaking to Paul and through Paul. We say it by the word of the Lord that those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, won't go before those. So here's the order. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we'll always be with the Lord. 
Comfort one another with these words. Any separation you have with a loved one who died, who is a believer in Jesus Christ, is temporary. It's just like they've gone away, gone on vacation. Then they'll be back. Well, there may be tears, but they're not hopeless tears. We'll see you next time. We'll see you shortly. That's the way it is with the rapture of the church. You'll note it includes those who are living and those who have died. Now, if you're going to do Old Testament saints here, then everything else yet future has to be spiritualized, has to be made non-literally and taken non-literally. Why? Well, because if you take it literally, you have to have an earthly kingdom. You have to have people born. You have to have people who at the end of that thousand years that number like the sand of the seashore who turn and rebel against Christ. Well, wait a minute. That couldn't be those who have been glorified. That's the final step in our salvation, glorification in his presence. This includes the living and the dead in verses 16 and 17. But it only includes the living and the dead from the church. Those who have believed in Christ, those the dead in Christ will rise first. Then the others. Now, after the seven-year period, you're going to have the resurrection of Old Testament saints. And you have that on the chart, as well as tribulation saints. So the church ends up being a unique entity. It's not part of the 70 weeks of Daniel, not part of the first 69 weeks, because it didn't begin till after the death of Christ, his burial, his resurrection. Then on the day of Pentecost, which is 50 days after Passover, we have the beginning of the church. Well, then I take it we're going to have the church removed. So that order of events is crucial. Unbelievers, they upon death are consigned to the sufferings of hell, but they will be resurrected at the end of the thousand-year period. So we have those who have died as believers, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and so on, resurrected. They get their resurrected bodies at the end of the seven years, along with those who are saved during that seven-year period. Then after the thousand years, you have unbelievers resurrected, and they're sentenced to an eternal hell. So that's the order We say, well, that fits. But most believers, quote, don't hold that. And that's where I read you the statement of the one writer who says dispensationalism has declined as we have moved into the new century. Because, well, I used to say, everybody move in. We got to get more people in. Where are they? Well, they're going to other churches. Well, that's fine, except are we seeing any increase in numbers? Perhaps we've seen some who've just fallen by the way. They may just got caught up in the enthusiasm of it's the in thing to be at a Bible-believing church, and they don't attend anymore. But Hebrews 10 says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together because you have a ministry to one another that must go on And God's intention is you meet together. So there's all kind of things going on. 
But we do see a decline, as far as I've been able to observe it, in what we would call dispensational understanding of Scripture, which is we interpret the Bible literally, which is just historically, grammatically, in its context. And that goes right through the book of Revelation. That's where we're going to start. All right, now we're ready to look at the... uh, The Greek word for rapture is harpazo, H-A-R-P-A-Z-O, H-A-R-P-A-Z-O. The way we would transliterate it, carry it over into English, and naturally wouldn't look the same if you wrote it out with Greek. If you could pronounce it, it would be harpazo. So we just transliterate it over into English. So it's true, we don't have the word rapture because that comes from when they translated the New Testament from Greek into Latin. Then they took the Latin word and went on and we have rapture. So somebody says the word rapture doesn't appear in the Bible. Just list a couple of Greek words and say, where does that appear in the Bible? Well, it doesn't. Some words we've carried over. Baptizo. Oh, baptize. I got that. Well, we just carried over a Greek word and anglicized it, made it more conform to our English. That's what we did, only we used the Latin translation of the New Testament. But harpazo is the word. Let me uh, look at a couple of references with you of the word harpazo, the Greek word. Starting in Acts chapter 8, verse 39. Now here, Philip is doing the baptism here. And he baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch. So verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. He was harpazoed. He was raptured away. So that's the word we have in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4. It's the same word as we have here, Philip. He was snatched away. He was raptured away. If we would take the English word that came from the Latin word, it was raptured away. He was carried away. It means to carry away. It's not difficult. Come over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 2, Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago Whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a man was raptured up to the third heaven, caught up, harpazo. He was snatched up to the third heaven. Paul says, I don't know whether this actually happened to me. I was transported bodily to heaven or it was a vision God gave me. I don't know. I know that the truth of what was revealed to me on that occasion. So there you have the man, verse 4, was caught up. Verse 2, the man was caught up. Verse 4, he was caught up. There's our word again, comes from the verb, harpazo. He was caught up. He was raptured. He was snatched away. He was caught away. Revelation chapter 12 Now, this is the only other one we'll look at. Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up. 
there's our word, it was caught up to heaven, was harpazoed, was raptured to heaven. That's the point that's made. Christ was caught up to the Father. What? After his resurrection, he met with the disciples in Acts chapter 1, and then he's caught up. He raptured away is the idea. So that's the same word that's used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. Though we who are alive and remain will be caught up. Harpazo. Or the Latin translation, we brought the English word over as raptured. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, But you note, if we're going to do this with believer and unbeliever alike, then we're going to have to spiritualize the thousand-year millennium because it has all kind of people rebelling against Christ at the end of the millennium in Revelation chapter 20. And that means then we'll just spiritualize the rest of it all and we're just enjoying God's presence and, oh, wait a minute. Who says we're going to do that with Scripture? We're going to take it as it is. There are a number of other passages. We looked at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 58. That talked about the rapture of the church. John chapter 14, the first three verses, I think, anticipate the rapture because Jesus says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and get you to be with me. Wait a minute. That's a hint a preview of what's going to happen at the rapture. That's not Christ coming to establish his kingdom on the earth and you'll rule and reign with me. You'll be caught up to meet me in the air and go to my father's house. So that would be John 14, the first three verses. And then Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. A similar kind of idea. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So that will happen to us at the rapture of the church. He'll transform the body of our humble state into the body conformity with the body of his glory. That's a resurrection glorified body. That does not marry. That does not have children. That is a unique and special privilege and honor. But there will be children born in the thousand year earthly kingdom. Now I realize the majority of Christians probably just Spiritually, that way, say, I don't get into that. I don't know. It'll just let it all work out whenever. Well, wait a minute. Who am I to tell God what is important in his word and what is not? Well, I don't worry about those things. Well, maybe you ought to start and worry about am I saved to begin with? If I really come to understand salvation by faith through grace, something's wrong here. This idea, well, you know, I don't get into the future things. They're just so confusing. There's so many ideas. That's true of the whole Bible. I mean, I could list commentary and we could just spend weeks and months and going through commentaries that 
basically are undermining Scripture. I say we are responsible to understand everything from Genesis 1 through the last chapter of the book of Revelation, chapter 22. And we're to handle it carefully and accurately. God just didn't speak because he didn't have anything else to do. He spoke so that we would know, understand, and believe the truth. All right. The book was done many years ago in the 1950s, I believe, but it's still worth reading. You can pick that up. But in the appendix of that, he has 50 reasons for the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. 50 reasons. I've narrowed it down to seven because seven's a number of perfection. Besides, we don't have time to do all 50. But it's worth working through those and finding out. Yes, there are many more reasons. So I just want to focus on what are the reasons. The first reason, and we won't get through all seven this time, but that's all right. We'll pick up the next time and we'll work through these. The first one is the focus of the 70 weeks of Daniel. Daniel 9.24. We looked at this a little bit ago in Daniel 9.24. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. So the 70 weeks of Daniel, and that's 77-year periods. They're weeks of years, not weeks of days. So it's 77s, literally. And after the 69th seven, 483 years, well, we can pretty well work that out. We come to the crucifixion of Christ. About the last week of his life culminates in the crucifixion. It's after that 483rd year. You can pick up Alva J. McLean's little booklet on the 70 weeks of Daniel at Sound Words. It will walk you through and shows how, yes, it's after those 69 weeks. Christ is crucified. The church did not come into existence until after the 69th week was completed. Because after the 69th week, Christ is, uh, is executed. It's not until the Antichrist signs the agreement with Israel that the 70th week begins. So there's the indication of a pause there, a break. But we're not told that it's 2,000 years. You know, so the disciples in Acts chapter 1 didn't know. Okay, now we understand you had to suffer and die. We had overlooked that. You know, we were expecting the kingdom. But now we understand as Christ explained to them after his resurrection. Remember how he had to suffer and the Old Testament prophesied his death. And Oh, now it's all clear. Okay, now we can have the kingdom. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know when the kingdom is going to begin. They're expecting the kingdom, but it's not now. You'll receive the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then you'll be witnesses to me. And that witness will include the Gentile world. In fact, it will ultimately focus on the Gentile world where we are today. We're not going to take a poll, but, you know, we could ask how many of you are Jewish. Well, we're primarily a Gentile church. My wife... You know, she gets classified as a Jew. But by and large, the Jews are few. This is a day of Gentile salvation. Some Jews 
Paul was saved. He was a Jew. But by and large, it's a Gentile work today. So Revelation 6 to 19 are about this 70th week of Daniel. So we have it. The focus of the 70 weeks of Daniel are on Israel, Jerusalem. When we get to Revelation chapter 6, Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3 are about the church. Then 4 and 5, we're in heaven where the church is. Then chapter 6 to 19 of Revelation, we're back to earth and the coming of Christ and the establishing of the earthly kingdom. Okay, let me make sure I got everything I want to get. All right, and there's the... Okay, that's it, okay. Um, Come to Romans chapter 11. Come to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul's talking about the Jews. Because, you know, my focus, I come to church at Rome, and the church of Rome is a Gentile church, has Jews in it, but it's primarily a Gentile church in a Gentile region. What about the Jews? Chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans are about that. In Romans chapter 11, verse 25, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Here's a mystery. And what? It's new information from God. It will not be understood apart from the revelation that God gives. So you won't find this in the Old Testament. So when you're reading a commentary and it told you about the church in the Old Testament, you say, wait a minute, the church is a mystery when we come to the New Testament. I want you to be informed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved. So there's a salvation for the nation Israel in accordance with what God prophesied and promised in the Old Testament. But it won't happen until this time where God has placed Israel under judgment. That's what Christ is talking about in Acts chapter 1. And the church begins in Acts chapter 2. And for 2,000 years we've had the church. We've had a few Jews be saved. I mean, relatively few uh, compared to the number of Gentiles that comprise the church. All Israel will be saved, but it's after the fullness of the Gentiles. So again, you see what we did on the chart. It's the rapture, the focus of the 70 weeks of Daniel. That's why the church is called a mystery. You come over to Ephesians. We just did the book of Ephesians together. Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me. Now, there's a stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. And in verse 3, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. That's what the stewardship of the grace given to Paul. There was made known to me the mystery. As I wrote in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. What does it mean to be a mystery? Which in other generations, verse 5 of Ephesians 3, was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. 
And the mystery basically is that the Gentiles, verse 6, are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me, the least of all the saints. To bring to verse 9, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for its ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So this is not new. Sometimes those who are criticizing dispensational approach to handling the scripture say, oh yeah, God had, oh, I made a mistake. It's not working out. I have to do something different. No, it's hidden in God. So this is not something new to God. It's new for us. It's been in the plan of God from before the creation of the world when Christ was crucified in the plan of God. So, verse 9, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which has been for ages hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. Even the angels, those are the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. Even the angels have come to understand in a full or more complete way because remember, there was no salvation provided for angels who sinned. Lucifer and all the angels who joined him in their rebellion are consigned to an eternal hell, period. There is no salvation provided for angels. Christ did not become an angel. That's in the book of Hebrews. So even the angels of heaven, Gabriel and all the others, they, even the unfallen, are beholding. Oh, God, amazing. He's provided salvation with the death of his son. And it's not just for a chosen nation. It's for the nations. And this was in accordance, verse 11, with the eternal purpose. The purpose of the ages, which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that emphasizes the mystery of the church, God's faithfulness and his plan and the rebellion of Israel culminating in the crucifixion of Christ was a great disaster for Israel and yet it was a great accomplishment because God used that culminating act of rebellion of the nation Israel to provide a savior for the world. And you and I are here today Saved by God's grace through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And after all is done, God will complete his program with Israel because he's always true to his word. And going back to the covenant he made with Abraham and Abraham's descendants through Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there is promised redemption. So that will be, but for now, he's focusing on primarily the Gentile world. So verse 8, Paul said, the grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. He preached to Jews, but primarily as a Gentile. It's the church at Ephesus. It's the church at Corinth and so on. He would go and he would tell the Jews and their Jews saved. 
of course, but it's primarily a Gentile work of God's salvation that's accomplished today. I think we will draw to a close there. We've just gotten started, but the others will move more quickly because we won't have all the background information to do. It's simple. Take the Bible literally, historically, grammatically. It doesn't mean they're not figures of speech. It doesn't mean there aren't metaphors and everything else that go on in Scripture. But it all is in the context of a literal interpretation. There's a literal thousand-year kingdom coming. Just as Christ had to literally die on the cross to pay the penalty for sins, be raised from the dead, he will literally rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. There will literally be a number that you cannot number that when given a choice between Christ and the devil after a thousand years of perfect reign, will choose the devil. Rebel against Christ. That will result in a literal judgment and destruction of all the wicked by their sentencing to hell. Then we move into eternity and that is what the kingdom is to be. Perfect righteousness, perfect holiness for all eternity. It comes back to, have you ever believed? Truly believed. Not have you grown up in this church, not have you learned Bible verses. Have you ever truly believed in Jesus Christ as the one who loved you and died for you? For you personally. And you're here because he loved me and died. I'm here because my parents dragged me. I'm here because my husband comes or my wife comes or this or that or, you know, I think you should do this or that. The bottom line is, do you understand Christ died for us according to the scriptures? He was buried. He was raised from the dead the third day. Have you understood your hopeless lost condition and placed your faith in him? When you do, you're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's why you're baptized physically. Not to produce salvation because salvation is a spiritual matter. But you're baptized because you're giving testimony that you now belong to Christ. And if you belong to Christ, you belong to the church that he has established. And he has made clear in Hebrews chapter 10, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as a matter of some because you have to minister to one another. And the ministry to one another takes place when the church gathers together. So... We are here because God has appointed us to study his word, to learn, and to grow. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the riches of your word. Lord, we just scratched the surface, and yet we are amazed at the truth that you have revealed to us, your children. Thank you for your spirit who indwells each and every believer, who opens the eyes of our understanding to know and to grasp these truths, to take them to heart, to count them precious, and to have a life shaped and brought into conformity to the one who is our Savior, Jesus Christ. We give you thanks that he loved us, he died for us, and we have hope for time and eternity because our faith is in him, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Sound Words, a ministry of Indian Hills Community Church. Make sure to download our app from iTunes or Google Play for more messages like the one you just heard. If you would like to contact us, please email 
soundwords at ihcc.org. Or give us a call at 402-483-4541.